turn to the latest powder keg in the Middle East, Syria. A bloody day. At least 75 people were killed during any pro chance of uh, there being any investigation or any accountability for these crimes. For the first time, Syrian officials are going to trial to face accusations of war crimes. Welcome to the first episode of Branch 251, the podcast about the world's first criminal trial dealing with accusations of atrocity crimes by Syrian officials. My name is Fritz Streif. I'm a human rights lawyer based in Paris. My work focuses for a large part on international justice, particularly in recent years on Syria accountability. I'm one of the hosts, and I'll be the lawyer guy on this podcast. And since nobody likes too much lawyering, I'm very happy to introduce my co-host for this podcast, Karam Shumali. Karam, how are you doing? Thank you, Fritz. I'm good. And hello, everyone. I'm Karam Shumali. I'm a journalist from Damascus, living now in Berlin. I have covered the conflict in Syria for the New York Times for the past eight years. And together, Fritz and I will give you a short weekly update on the trial that started in Koblenz last week and provide you with some background and context to this complex and groundbreaking trial. Groundbreaking is the word here. This is a really first-of-its-kind trial, the first criminal trial that deals with accusations of atrocity crimes by Syrian officials after all these years. So it is really historic in a way. Yes, it is. Uh, this is a big moment for us Syrians. We have we have been waiting for this for a long time. Um, the conflict has been going on for nine years, as you know. And now, finally, there is a court that looks at the terrible crimes that were committed by the regime. Yeah. And uh, from Syria all the way to Koblenz in Germany, Fritz, it's quite mm. unexpected that this trial is not taking place at the International Criminal Court or mm. at any other international tribunal. Yeah, no, it is it is kind of strange, and some legal commentators have dubbed this kind of uh, a third best option for international justice for Syria. Mm-hmm. Many of our listeners will know this, but it's good to just quickly revisit why this trial is taking place in Koblenz in Germany, of all places. Yes. So at the United Nations Security Council, referrals of Syrian crimes to the International Criminal Court, the ICC in The Hague, have routinely been vetoed by China and Russia. And the creation of an ad hoc international tribunal like the ones for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia have also been blocked. Also, Syria is not a member of the ICC itself, so direct jurisdiction for the court is not an option either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Germany has what they call universal jurisdiction in its national law for the most terrible atrocity crimes like crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. That means that German prosecutors can bring those cases even if the crimes were not committed in Germany Mm. or by Germans or against Germans, have nothing to do with Germany, one could say. And uh, still, the German prosecutors can bring these cases and the German courts can hear those cases. Mm -hmm. Other countries that are members of the ICC have similar laws, especially other European countries like France or the Netherlands or many more. But Germany really stands out the last years as a particularly active legal system in terms of investigating crimes committed in Syria. And the authorities there have said that this is also in part because there are so many Syrians that now live in Germany, like Yukoram. Like how many many are there? Uh, Yes. I mean, there are around 800,000 Syrians currently living in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the authorities have said that that is one of the reasons that... um, they have a kind of moral obligation to deal with these crimes right, in German right. courts because right. there are so many Syrians in Germany, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting development. And 
this attitude and this effort is now resulting in a first trial of its kind in Koblenz, in Germany. Right. So, okay. What are we actually talking about? What is the court dealing with? Fritz and I went through an excerpt from the indictment on the court's website and with the exact accusations. Let me just summarize some of them here. Um, yeah, and before you do that, yeah. by the way, in the German legal system, they don't mention the last names of defendants due to German privacy law. So that uh, might sometimes um, seem a bit strange just to have the first letter of the last name. Right, right, right. So Thursday, the 23rd of April 2020 was the first day in court. During that first day, the prosecutor told the court the details of the allegations. Uh, the two defendants allegedly were members of the Syrian General Secret Service in the Syrian capital, Damascus. The defendant Anwar R. is alleged to have headed the investigations unit in branch 251 of the General Intelligence Service. Branch um, 251, exactly. Yes. That's 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 the branch, that's that's the prison, that's the place, that's the topic that this whole trial is is all about and, and that this podcast is all about. That is our podcast, yes. And the defendant Anwar R. is accused of crimes against humanity, including murder, mm. 58 counts, mm. torture and deprivation of liberty, rape and severe sexual assault. If he's convicted, he could get life imprisonment. The prosecution accuses him of murder and torture under his leadership and also responsibility in the prison of Branch 251. Mm-hmm. Between the 29th of April 2011 and the 7th of September 2012, at least 4,000 inmates wow. of Branch 251 were tortured for the entire duration of their mm-hmm. imprisonment. 4,000? Yes, 4,000. And that's within, I guess, um, 15 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they were so subjected much. to brute force by being beaten, kicked, and electroshocked, and subjected to rape and other sexual abuse. Wow. Okay, yeah. so it, it really was a type of torture prison, is what the prosecutor is alleging right. here. Yeah. So, so those are pretty hefty accusations on the on the first defendant, Anwar. Mm-hmm. What about the second defendant? Well, as for the second defendant, Iyad A. He's being accused of aiding and abetting crimes against humanity, including torture and deprivation of liberty, but not sexual violence in his case. He's also only accused of aiding and abetting. And so if he's convicted, he faces three to 15 years in prison. Right. So that's a, I mean, that's a lot less, three to 15 years in comparison to life imprisonment, um, what they're facing. Um, I guess we can say that Iyad A is the smaller fish of the two. Well, yes. In this case, I I guess you can call him the smaller fish, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Iyad A was allegedly an employee of a subdivision of the Branch 251. Mm -hmm. And in autumn 2011, after the violent breakup of a demonstration, he allegedly searched the streets with colleagues for fleeing demonstrators. And finally... He and his colleagues managed to capture and arrest at least 30 people, mm-hmm. and they bust them to the prison of Branch 251. Mm-hmm. And uh, the detainees uh, allegedly were already beaten on the way to the prison, as well as upon arrival. And uh, they were then brutally abused and, and uh, systematically tortured. Mm-hmm. And uh, the prisoners were denied medical care and even personal hygiene. They couldn't really take showers, mm-hmm. and they there was not enough uh, to eat, and often the food was just simply inedible. 
and the prison cells were so overcrowded that it was often impossible to sit or lie down and prisoners had actually to to sleep standing up well wow. yeah okay yeah. so so that's what the prosecutors charged the two defendants with and um is sort of the legal accusations and the legal uh, framing that uh, the court published on its website but we also talked to some of the people who were present in the courtroom that first day and right. they said this was a really hard but also a really special moment uh, when the prosecutor read out the charges he actually went into a lot more detail um, and based on witness and victim stories of what they had to endure in branch 251 yeah well i mean that was a very important day Fritz. Mm. it was the, the first time the victims came face to face with their torturers in a in a sitting like that in a court in a country with a functioning legal system here in germany where mm. rule of law is is highly respected and justice is not some vague concept yeah and and the defendants were asked by the prosecutor literally did you understand what i just said and the charges against you huh. they they had to listen both iyad and anwar mm -hmm. had to listen and acknowledge it and this is really unheard of in all these years i mean this is why it was indeed a historic moment Right. Okay. And then um, the court took a break and uh, came back for the second day. And again, the second day was similarly heavy um, as the first day. So it was really a, a heavy start of the trial. Mm -hmm. A federal police officer appeared as a witness. He talked about the investigation and how the police identified the two accused and how they collected the evidence against them. He also recounted some of the witness testimonies again, and it was, again, really pretty graphic stuff and included, you know, description of torture methods and, and how they were called and how they were applied to the victims. Right. It was nothing, it was nothing for the faint-hearted. No, 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 it's not. And I, I think after those first two days, it was good for everyone involved to have a break over the weekend. Mm -hmm. It was overwhelming those first two days. And pretty hard, I think, mm -hmm. for many, it is like reliving a trauma. Yeah. And on the third day, the court heard an expert witness, an ethnologist. Mm -hmm. um, she told the court about Syria's recent history, the politics and society over the past decades, and the origins and the beginning of the conflict that erupted in 2011. Mm -hmm. She did mention that such torture against political opposition was not a new thing in Syria. Mm -hmm. It was also used back in the 1970s when the current President Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafiz, was still in power. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of some continuity there over the decades and, and uh, over the different reigns of, of governments and then uh, inside the Assad family and sort of restricting freedoms and, and rights and um, suppressing opposition by, by using torture and, and, uh, and sometimes by using the, the same torture techniques. Yeah, right. Torture and uh, torture techniques are, uh, yeah, very common in Syria. Yeah. Okay. So then... On the fourth day, it became a bit more technical. Uh, the court focused on hearing witnesses from German authorities about Anwar R's identity and asylum procedure in Germany. Mm -hmm. Two witnesses really stood out, one from the German Migration and Refugee Authority mm -hmm. and the other from the German Foreign Office. The court learned from them that Anwar received asylum in Germany as part of a program for particularly vulnerable Syrian refugees hmm. on the recommendation of an opposition figure called Riyadh Saif. Wow. And the authorities' general conclusion was that Anwar played an active role in the opposition at the time of his asylum application. Wow. 
they said that proof of that was his participation in peace talks in Geneva in 2014. The court was also shown foreign office documents from the time, and on those documents, it was clearly stated what Anwar's profession had been previously, namely colonel in the state security administration. Wow, so, so the German authorities took Anwar in as a refugee with a special protection needs and concluded that he was part of the opposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then they also showed that before defecting, he was a high-ranking colonel in the Syrian state security. Yeah. That is and was a notorious part of the Syrian state. I'm sure the, the authorities here in Germany knew that. And yeah. I mean, we are starting to see some interesting shades of gray here. And uh, yeah. I think we got a taste of what might you know, become really important in this trial later on. Right, right, right. Anwar's role is really complex. There's a lot of more things and, and details to mention about that. His defense will also focus on these complexities to a large extent. His lawyer was actually going to read a statement from him um, at this uh, beginning of the trial, right. but he uh, he didn't get to it. So he he will probably do that uh, when court sessions resume. Yeah. But Anwar's background is really fascinating, and uh, we'll come back to that in a future episode. So that was the first week of the trial in recap. Wow, it's indeed like an intense week yeah. for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, and for you too, I, I can imagine. What, um, how did this first week, uh, how did that feel for you, Karam? Well, that's, this trial is highly symbolic for me and mm-hmm. I guess millions of Syrians. This is the first time since the beginning of the Syrian conflict that we see the victim and the victimizer in the same room mm-hmm. for, for justice to take its course. Mm-hmm. And we, we also got a reaction about the beginning of this trial from someone who was imprisoned in Branch 251. Yeah. Her name is Nuran Algamian. I talked to her on Thursday and asked her what the start of this trial means to her. This is what she told me. I am Nuran Algamian, one of the victims of Anwar Raslan. After one year, I was detained in that same branch under the command of him. Honestly, I had a mixture of feelings, anger, relief, and hope all at the same time when I saw Anwar behind bars. I hope justice takes its course and punish this man and those who like him who tortured me and many others. That was Nuran Algamian. Thank you, Nuran, for that comment. And I think it is time for for a heavy and deep breath. Wow! Yeah, this um, yeah, this is hard to to deal with, and it will be it will be hard. Yeah. This is going to stretch over, um, you know, some say two to three years, and um, yeah, we're talking about a torture prison here, Branch Two Fifty One. Times of COVID nineteen and social distancing. Social distancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the court uh, went through with it. Yeah, they, they. I guess they could allow an only fifteen journalists. I guess. Yeah, right? they they really downsized yeah. capacity because uh, you need to re- be respecting social distancing even in uh, even in the framework of justice. But uh, and such a big case. It's such yes. a big case, and that's why they that's why they pushed through with this because um, it's uh, it's significant. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that's it for the first episode of Branch 251. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We will be back next week. There will be no court then. The next session is scheduled, I guess, for the 18th of May. So we will use the court break to take you into some of the background of this case. We will take you on a journey into Branch 251 itself, the torture prison that this trial is all about. What is Branch 251 and how does it look like? How do survivors describe it? Yeah. And until then, 
Thank you for listening, everybody. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe. You'll have the episodes coming to you automatically every week,、mm-hmm. and you can tell your friends and colleagues about it. Yes, please do, and you can also support this podcast by following the link in the show notes or clicking on the support this podcast button on our website. And talking about the show notes, we'll drop some of the most interesting sources and links for further reading and listening if you're interested、uh, in those show notes. Branch Two Fifty One is produced and hosted by the two of us. I am Fritz Streif, and I'm Karam Shamali. See you next time on Branch Two Fifty One. Thank you. See you then. <laughs>